Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of Control Alt Speak. For those of you that don't know my voice, I'm Chris Pallett from Bespoke Computing, and I'm joined this time with Stuart Robertson from Full Fat Things. Stuart, good morning. How are you? Great. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Okay. So, well, Chris, before we start, what what is it that you want to get from the podcast? Why are you doing it? Great question, Stuart. So um, one of the objectives that we've set for the business this year, we want to uh, we want to educate, we want to help people and their businesses get more from technology. Now, rather than rather than banging people's doors down and trying to hard sell, if we can just say to people, right, how how you run your business, how you run your technology is great. It's obviously got your business this far to this point. But what are you missing? What else could you be doing? What um, and just to try and challenge challenge some some thought processes along the way. Now, the only way we can do that is to is to to talk to people. We can look at case studies. We can look at businesses, and we can say, right, well, what are you doing? And if if I can have a conversation with somebody and if somebody just pulls out one one tiny little nugget that that could potentially transform the way they they run their business, then happy days. And whether we get anything out of that or not, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. We're doing we're doing our we're doing our bit. Obviously, obviously, we do want people to come to us and say, well, actually, Chris, you were talking about this, this and this. Can you help me? That that would be great. But it's not. It's not the only reason for doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for everybody that's listening, I mean, obviously you and I know each other through our circles, but for the people that are listening or watching this that don't know you, who are you and what is it that you do? There's a little bit silly black there. Okay, yeah. Well, well good <laughs> Um Well, I'm Stuart Robinson. I, uh, I live in the Midlands in Staffordshire, and I run a company called Four Five Things, which you've already introduced. We're 10 years old and we're a software company. And um, the, now there are lots of software companies in the UK, but what I think makes Four Five Things a little bit interesting is that we are a completely distributed company. There's no central office. There's no one location that we gravitate towards, and this has always been the case. And um, one of the other things that makes it interesting is we were founded out of open source contributions. So most of us contribute to open source frameworks and that's where we've actually grown and we've hired people from open source communities as a way of seeing um, their past contributions are almost as better than a, than a CV. You know, people talk so much about the uh, problems with the recruitment process and why interviews fail here and there. And so we do it by looking first at what you've contributed to the public domain. Um, and then after that, we go through interview processes and things like that. We build lots of software for publishers, for venture capital groups, um, and all sorts of different industries, mostly web software. Okay, that's that's really that is really interesting. I didn't, uh, we've never we've never spoken about open source before, so I didn't know that. So that's new to me. Um, how now? Obviously, this is my twenty fifth year in industry, so I know what open source is. But the people that are watching and listening won't. How would you how would you describe open source to the layman? Well, I, when computing first arrived in industry, most things were open source, which most things were free at the point of where you got them from. So you would get your operating system for your computer and it just came with it. It was free. It was software started like this. And then 
at some point someone decided to commercialize at all. You know, this it was universities sharing how to run computers and uh, governments figuring out how they could talk to each other. And at some point someone figured out this is commercial, uh, commercializable. Commercializable, yeah. is that the word? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and software became this, this paid concept. But throughout that whole time, um, running alongside it, there was this concept of free software, which, which means free as in beer and free as in you are free to do whatever you like with that software. At your um, own risk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. You, you take your chances, you carry on, and there, isn't, uh, and then there may not be a support contract behind it to look after you. Um, and of course, there are lots of companies that do those uh, uh, support contracts, but you, you're under no obligation to, to, to sign up with any of those. You can just take the software and use it. So um, big things like Linux, which forms the, the foundation of most mobile phones now, uh, have come from open source, and they and uh, and we work on things like that. So open source in general is this idea that companies and individuals collaborate to build software that is freely available to use. And the core of the internet runs on open source software. So the biggest uh, the, the the biggest routers out there are full of open source software that that actually send all of our data across the internet. The 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 most popular web servers that send you Netflix and that send you all of your 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 data over the internet are built on top of open source software. It might not all be open source software, but this concept that it's free, it's available on the internet for you to get, and you can use it to push your business forward or your you know your personal life forward. Um, it's it's all there. The software itself doesn't have to be paid, and it opened up a ton of new revenue models for the people who who actually do it. You know. Um, if you think about you're going to go on an IT project to build a new website, for example, I would use that because that's what we sort of do. Um, in in the classic commercial model, you'd buy some uh, some software, you know, come with a license fee, and then you would start your work to build on top of that to adapt it to your look and feel, to apply your brand, and to put your stuff onto it. Whereas with open source software, you download this stuff for free and then you begin step two. So you take away that initial charge. Now there are some arguments that say that that initial charge means that the product is um, you know, more well-rounded or more suited to you. But to anyone who says that, I'd say go and look at WordPress. It's a, it's a website in a box. You know, Some of this stuff is absolutely fabulously well-rounded and ready for, for large scale usage. Yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. Um, do you know what the percentage of websites running on WordPress is these days? I don't. It's, it's oh, not it's for a while. I think it's it's yeah. more. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I've got this feeling it's more than twenty percent of the web. Um, yeah, that's good market penetration, isn't it? Yeah, it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's and it's ten times bigger than anything else. Yeah, it's. I think so. I think it's fair to say then that actually we we are using open source in our lives daily without any real concept that we're using it at all. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think almost every website on the planet um, uses some sort of open source software on it. Um, yeah. And so everyone is um, having exposure or getting exposure from it on a daily basis, whether they know it or not. But it shouldn't matter, should it? Whether it's commercial software or open source, all you want to know is that it works. Yeah, and it's very much the right tool for the job, and 
if, if that means it's open source, it's open source. If that means it's paid, it's paid. And yeah, yeah as long as you've got the right tool for the job, that's what that's what counts. No, that's um, that's that's really interesting. So when you bring that into your recruitment process, you're looking at what you're looking at a candidate, and you're basically saying, what have you contributed? What have you done? Yeah. Well, most of the um, most of the larger open source projects. I mean, we work specifically. A lot of our work is with one called Drupal, um, right. which is. Um, similar to WordPress in, in that you can make websites with it, but you tend to make uh, more professional websites. That, that sounds wrong because I'm not attacking WordPress there, but you would tend to make a website with it or an application that has more sort of uh, piles back into the business. So it might link directly to the EIP or the CRM, or it might help with the Salesforce. It would actually plug into the rest of the business. Um, so specifically in, in, um, in that realm, the the history of the project is all available on the project website so for us it's drupal.org yeah. um, and you can go onto that website and see who's contributed what where they've contributed they even run a league table um our company does quite well in the marketplace and we we rank quite highly because we contribute back to the project and therefore that is the deciding factor for how high you appear in the marketplace mm. uh, for people who are evaluating companies to help them. So it makes sense for us to hire from the community for people who are contributing well, if that helps you on the marketplace. It also makes sense for us to hire these people because um, they've demonstrated. I mean, one thing, because we're a distributed company, um, we need to know that people are going to sort of get in, get started, push things forwards, be outcome based and actually deliver. And if you worked, on open source software, anyone who has worked on it knows that there's a very high standard to which you must uh, deliver the work for it to be accepted because everything is peer reviewed. Um, so it shows that you've you've had the the attention to get through that to actually push through that barrier. It shows you that you've had the skill to push through that barrier. And then once you've once you've actually filtered it down to the people who A, were willing to give some time to try that, B, they got through the process. C is when you start to look at the quality of their contributions and how they've moved the product forward, you know, and what or whether they're just, you know, some of the, some of my contributions to Drupal have been tiny. Like I changed um, the link to the homepage to say, front page instead of main page once, you know, <laughs> I, am a, I am a game changer. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but, you know, some of the guys that we've got have, have really changed fundamental parts of it and pushed the product forward in a big way. And, and uh, you know, that reflects on us when we get to look at these marketplace listings for us that, that show our company in, in a good light. But to be honest, all of the marketplace stuff that we've been seeing has come much later uh, I think it was just a hiring tactic from the start to find people who were really into the the product, who were contributing to the product, so that when we have commercial work to do to deliver things with the product, I know I've got the team that that built the product we're on top of. How, you know, in what other worlds do you really get to have the original development team of the product that you are customizing actually building on your application? It doesn't happen, does it? Yeah. It's not, you're not going to get the guys behind Microsoft Word writing your documents for you, are you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, what, um, that's what makes it special. Mm. No, that's fascinating. So what you're saying there, Stuart, is that you're using people's contributions to your underlying product to get the right boys and girls in 
to work with you work on the projects that you're delivering and the 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 hidden benefit that came later perhaps without realizing is the competitive advantage to then win work based on your company-wide contribution yeah yeah it all gets rolled up and then you appear higher in rankings on the open source projects and i think drupal was one of the first projects um to do this where they actually started ranking your contributions because they wanted to uh, incentivize contributions so uh and one of the ways to incentivize them was to have companies get a higher ranking for the contributions that they've uh, been a part of yeah so in in our world so we have we have certification with uh with companies like microsoft so at the moment we have we have a we have a, a standard with with microsoft that we that we live to and as part of that my technical guys have to study take exams on particular subjects now the exams and the results from the exams are linked to the individuals and when we rec recruit the individuals into the business their exam results then build our company profile and those exam results if if one of my guys has has exam ab1 and they then go to a competitor I lose that accreditation from my portfolio because they take that with them. Does that same thing happen in your world or is your uh, yeah, company standing and your individual standing different? I think that there's some sort of half-life. Um, they actually, the people at the, in Drupal world don't admit how the rankings work publicly because I think you could start to gain them. But, yeah. um, but I've seen it. And I believe there's some sort of half-life because your contributions are based on the, the uh, you know X time period. So of course, if that person has left and those contributions stop, mm -hmm. then you slowly start to fade as the contributions gets further into the past. Um, but it's not like that person takes your your value away. You've still delivered all that value, and it'll still be there. It's just that your marketplace listings will slide, but then you just get someone else to contribute instead. So you keep the keep the, keep the churn of contribution running. Yeah. Product gets better. Marketplace stays high. Everybody wins. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Thank you. Coming back to what you started at the at, at the beginning uh, when you first introduced yourself, you've always worked remotely. The business has always been been remote. So I guess from a lockdown from a lockdown perspective and the whole working from home, how's that? Has that affected you? Um, yeah, how's, has. That, how's that affected the business? Um, well, a few things. So even though we work remotely, we still visit our customers, and um, uh, it's just that we don't have an office. But you know, I, I would personally be in London a couple of times a week with different various customers, um, and around the rest of the country. Uh, I haven't done any of that, so our new business has slipped, and our, our business from so more business that we would have got from existing customers has slipped a little bit. Not a crazy amount, but it has slipped. So our revenue is down uh, during lockdown, but I think that's kind of typical for lots of businesses. Um, for, for our delivery, for our actually doing our job, the only thing to affect us has been um, a few of the uh, staff have, um, have had to alter their working hours um, because they've also been teaching. Yes. So whether they've had to take 
uh, more time off or whether they've been working into the evening. We, we, we always allowed this. As I say allowed, it's, it's more of a, a culture that's built up. It's, it's not like we say this is when you must work and this is when you, you mustn't. We like people, people to be around during office hours because, you know, that's when customers are around. But in general, we've always, we've always had, we've, there's one member of staff who's worked with us for sort of six or seven years. And um, he's, he very regularly, before lockdown and during lockdown, works from about 11 p.m. to 12 p.m. And as far as um, uh, so 12 a.m. And as far as I can tell, I think it's when his wife falls asleep and he just logs back in and and does a little <laughs> bit more, you know. Um, so so we're we're used to it being flexible, and but it's been much more noticeable with uh, you know a few people working from 3 p.m. onwards instead of from 9 a.m. onwards, but. We haven't missed any deadlines. We've shipped everything we aim to ship. Um, a lot of our work allows us to be asynchronous because, um, you know, you don't always need that immediate collaboration. You can wait for that collaboration to happen. It can happen via email. We use things like um, GitHub for storing code. Um, so a lot of the collaboration is just waiting for your next action on GitHub. Um, and we use uh, public wikis where we can document our work and then people can post comments on it. And the, the nice thing about the wikis is the email management because they automatically email out when people need to do things. So, you know, it's you don't rely on the passing crowd or, or catching someone. The tools are in place that automatically notify the other people who need to be involved with the work. Um, and I guess whether we did that on purpose or whether we just pick the tools that we liked and they happen to do this, it's, that's in the sands of time. But most of the tools that we use allow for asynchronous working. And the only thing that keeps us quite synchronous is uh, things like Slack, you know, where you're in messaging each other. Um, that That's the thing that keeps us really together. But, um, you know, so that's that slipped in the last few months. Mm. So how, so if you're a big advocate of Slack, how does it feel to be on a Teams call right now? <laughs> um, a couple of customers use Teams um, calls, and I, I think the Teams calls are so much better than Slack calls. Slack calls are its a terrible weakness. You know, for instance, we pay for Slack, and we also pay for Zoom. Yeah. Um, whereas I think with Teams, you don't need to do; you just have the one package. Yeah, that's right. It's you've got all of that functionality all all wrapped in, and yeah, Teams and Slack are obviously very uh, very big competitors. Slack's got got history and age on its side, um, whereas and Zoom Zoom's another another interesting one in that I think the ease of access with Zoom it's easy it's easy just to throw it onto your mobile phone or your iPad and 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 just crack on and use it. They've they've really made it easy to get to get in and get get up and running whereas um I, I can't speak for slack because i haven't i haven't used slack for a very long time but teams initially if you're new to teams it is it can be quite challenging i think yeah oh yeah when you turn slack on and it's your first time turning it on there's a little robot that talks to you and says and, and now send me a message and you know the onboarding is fabulous yeah um and it really teaches you how to go um no. yeah i i all of these things are an adjustment from just walking over to someone's desk. I, I completely get that. 
so where do you think people obviously there's a lot of people that are going to be new to working working from home um whereas it's second nature to you and your team where do you think people might have struggled with change and would you as somebody that's done it for a while have you got have you got any top tips that you would that you would give them i think um i think that companies are laid out so that uh, i mean i remember some of the newsroom reorganizations where um, the Guardian, and I think it was the Times as well, read their newsrooms so that the editor is in the middle and then the the editor of the, the travel section or the sports section or the whatever, they would sit directly outside them. And then so you'd have this circle where the most important people were in the middle and then it spread out from it. And I, and I can understand that. There's like this source of information flowing from the outer rooms into the centre and, and yeah. ending up with the editor making the final decisions. And I think... Great, you all spent millions of pounds on that, and I understand why you did that then. And now you've all been sent home. So I think if you've mapped your organization around the flow of data, so if you've mapped your office around the flow of data, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. I remember I worked at The Economist many years ago and um, uh, at a, a weekly newspaper, and um, their, their corner offices were for their various editors. So the different editors got corner offices on the floor and then the actual writers sat along the floor. Um, and it, it was funny how the, the articles during the week to be included in the paper had to work their way to the corners and then upstairs. You know, yeah. I mean, this is like a hundred year old process that they follow. But yeah, the, the articles would get closer to the corners of, of the building. Yeah, but it's, it's always worked for them. And yeah, they don't know any different. But for um, for people who struggled, I think it is the people who relied on physical spaces to actually do things for them, rather than they've occupied the physical spaces. Um, uh, we've got we've got some customers that um, and that print magazines, and what one one part of the uh, magazine production process is to produce this printed flat plan where they literally put the magazine on the floor and they print it out, put this whole thing on the floor. So there's okay. this. A4 sheets on the floor all the way along the room. Well, they haven't been able to do that for three months. Um, <laughs> so they haven't been able to go, oh, this story looks wrong now. Let's, because it's next to this advertisement, let's move that one back there. And they literally move the pieces of paper. And then you think, okay, I understand why this happened, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Why is it still happening now when they're all being made in InDesign? Why can't they, um, you know, drag these things and print them and move them around? Yeah, that's I guess. Yeah, I get. I think that's that's the thing though. If you, I mean, we say we say to clients, um, if they've got something that already works, there needs to be a, a, a bloody good reason why why you would go and make a change. But you flip that into this scenario here. They've got something that's worked. They haven't made a change, and then that change has been forced upon them. Yeah, I don't actually know what they did with these flat plans. They must have done. They, you know, but this is. I don't know what they did. And I think also, for one, one thing we've seen is that the customers with VPNs, um, where, where you're, you are allowing remote work, I mean, you know what a VPN is, but maybe I'll explain it in a second, um, yeah. where you're allowing remote work, but they have to access resources that are inside the office. Um, yeah. Typically, these VPNs are sized for maybe a quarter of your staff. And then suddenly, when you're putting all of your staff onto them, they're not yeah. sized correctly and they can't deal with it. Um, we've we've seen a number of our customers have drama with this, where they just couldn't get all of their people. Um, my sister-in-law actually, she worked for uh, I probably shouldn't say the name, very large company, and um, she uh, 
what they were doing, they're a very large company in Derby, their staff couldn't get onto the VPN. So they were driving to the office car park um, and not getting out of their cars and connecting to the Wi-Fi <laughs> from the car park. Oh my God. Doing, doing an hour until their laptop batteries um, ran out, downloading all whatever they needed, and then going home to do the rest. And this was a normal part of the day. You just had to go there, not get out of the car, and, and Wi-Fi it all down because the VPN was overloaded. Yeah, so there was um, quite early on in the lockdown, there was something that I saw. I think, I think it was Cisco had the same problem. And obviously Cisco being a networking company, they do, they do a lot, a lot of VPN products. And I saw this, I saw this article that, that basically said globally, Cisco did not have the VPN capacity for their corporate users to dial in to get all the stuff that they needed. So they were, um, they, they, they were basically, or they would gotten, they didn't have the local capacity. So they were trying to work on some global strategy to take their VPN availability and like follow the sun and do all sorts of shift, shift patterns and stuff to get people connected. So yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. It's, yeah. Um, but but spending an hour on the car that's that's, a, that's really... I know it's bonkers, isn't it? It's absolutely bonkers. I mean, and I think uh, I remember reading something about how Google had no VPN many many years ago, possibly before I started full that things. Um, they have no VPN. They rely on just identity systems on the web to identify you, and then you can use the system. So nothing is nothing is hidden. There's no being in the office. So they they would have just switched into homeworking immediately because they were already, you know, effectively the systems in the office were just providing internet access rather than they were some special network. And I think more businesses need to move towards that. Um, this concept that identity is really important, but this closed off network where you have your servers in your building or whatever it was, your services in your building, um, that probably needs, well, people need to think about stopping that and moving those services to be behind some sort of identity we've never had a vpn we've got no um private services everything that we use is on the internet but it's protected by um two-factor authentication but most of it for us is logging in with google you know yeah. most services you log in with google two-factor authentication then you're into the services including yeah. servers that we host things with and you know various little things like that, that i mean some of it is locked down to uh, to IP addresses and specific addresses where people live and work, but most of it you can just flow through without needing yeah. VPNs. Anyway, I've got yeah. a bit on VPNs there, but <laughs> no, but it, it does it raises a very valid point. And if you look at if you look at the figures for adoption rates of tools like Zoom and Teams, and then you bring in you bring in some of the products set like Google Drive, Office three six five. Teams, SharePoint, OneDrive, um, um, Facebook have their is it Hangouts. Um, this this type of tooling is is growing and growing, and businesses businesses do need to, to to be evaluating is this technology that should be part of of their technology stack. Um, it does open a can of worms. So things like making sure that people do have multi-factor or multi-factor authentication and all the safeguards around security and backup. And it's yeah, it's the number of people that we've spoken to over over recent years where they're like, 
Well, we use Office 365 for our uh, for storing our files. We use OneDrive, so 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 it's all backed up by Microsoft, right? And then you're like, well, yeah, they do do a backup to protect against their stuff failing. But if you go along and delete a file by accident or you've got a malicious employee or, or even if you just overwrite a couple of pages in a Word document and it's the wrong file, you're not coming back from that without supplementing that, that backup process. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's still a lot of education to be done and a lot a lot of help that people need. And then um, the other challenge, especially uh, especially over in, over here in Shropshire, where you, the sheep outnumber the men by a, by a majority, is the quality of of the internet connection. Now we've got uh, we've got a client that's they're moving um, they're moving to because I, I don't want to I can't say who they are, but they're moving to an internet based or a hosted system to run their business, and they've got um, they've got not far off a hundred people on their headcount. And the problem that they've now run into is that the internet connection that comes out of their primary site isn't big enough, won't support this this hosted service, and that that's the challenge. If we're if we're taking OneDrive or Google Drive or, or Dropbox or whatever, and you've got 20 people in your office all trying to download the same stuff, it's not. Yes, you've got the benefit that you've got no, um, you're decentralized. You don't need to be in the office, but it does bring other problems along with it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but I guess you, you won't see that because everybody's remote. Oh, yeah, so, we're, we're all using our own home internet connections, aren't we? I mean, yeah, yeah. and yes, they're paid for by the company, uh, but it doesn't mean that we get some problem. We had a customer that moved buildings um, a few years ago. They moved from one place in London to another place in London. And this coincided with them uh, moving to OneDrive on the same weekend. And Ouch. so when they moved to OneDrive and they moved, well, moved into this new building, so you'd already expect a few sort of potential issues on day one with the network and whatever. The yeah. network was completely saturated. Nobody could do any work because it was just OneDrive downloading everybody's files that were, that were taken from these sort of shared drives and popped into OneDrive. Yeah. And that nice. just... That just trashed it, and they trashed their network for a week, and they could do nothing about it. Yeah, that's that's bad planning, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is that is bad planning. I think it. I think what that reinforces the point, though, is these technologies are great. It's great that we've got this flexibility, but it's also important to look at the planning. Of, of how you adopt them is it right is it not right how you secure it how you protect it yeah um so yeah i don't i'm, I'm not worried about um my business or my industry being being made redundant just yet because we've still got technologies evolving um but we've still got we've still got to support people through through oh, yeah. that process that probably moves on to the next question quite nicely. As as businesses, we've we've seen we've seen a lot of change in our industries, both both short term over the last twelve weeks in terms of how we work, long term in how technologies evolved. Um, we've obviously gone full circle from mainframes to desktops, back to thin clients and hosted stuff. What what developments and trends have you seen in the last few months and where do you think it's going to go over the next couple of years? 
I think um, that the developments will be technology supported, but they're more about um, moving trust in staff from presenteeism to outcomes. So I think that for all of the companies that were really scared about um, allowing their people to work at home because of coronavirus, meaning that they couldn't travel to the office, um, their fear is basically because they were never aligned to having outcomes for staff that they wanted the staff to deliver on yeah. rather than knowing that their staff are in the office. I've got a couple of customers who hire relatively young salespeople um, and they just want their salespeople in the office and they want to see them on the phone. They have stand-up phone hours, you know, to make sure everybody's got that right level of attention. Uh, they ring a bell when they make sales. And I've got no criticism for any of that. They're, they're sales techniques that different people choose. And that's all, you know, it's all good. Um, I can only imagine how fearful they were that these salespeople were not, you know, suited and booted at home, ready to call all <laughs> of the people and, and get out there. So I think, I think that if coronavirus has shown us anything, it's that the people who are good at their job are still good at it at home. Um, we should be giving people outcomes to achieve. You know, those, those 10 sales that they make in the office, they can carry on making them wherever they are. Um, it's that I would, I would really hope that this opens some eyes. I think in, in some ways it won't because the business, business has been shut down as we saw GDP shrunk by 20%. So that's everybody's sales are going to be affected to a certain degree. Um, but I really hope that it shows the people who were fearful of um, people working at home or working maybe different hours um, where they're not visible, that this this can actually work, that this is really going to work. I, I have a minor fear for the commercial landlords of the country when people realise, you know, they can probably have 60% of the space that they had before if they allow more flexible working. Maybe they don't let go of those young hot rod salespeople um, and let them work at home, but maybe they let some people work at home. Uh, I know that as a developer that worked quite, you know, many years ago, um, I worked as a developer and we were quite close to the sales team. They had a cowbell for every time they made a sale. You're just there thinking, right, so I'm going to put this together and I'm going to plug this bit in. And then, and then, well, what was that bit? I go, ding, 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 ding. You know? <laughs> oh, I've just forgotten what I was thinking about because someone's hitting a cowbell. <laughs> oh, in um, in a in a former life before, in a former life before I set this business up, um, I was I was working I was working corporate land, um, doing software engineering, and one of the things that uh, one of the things that about exactly what you're saying, and uh, my ex-wife called it Devhead, and um, yeah, basically you're in that zone and. If anybody walks in the office and asks a question, God help them, because yeah, you're in you're in that yeah. zone. And uh, my best friend, he works he works for a corporate. He's a software engineer, and he'll sit there at his desk. He's got his headphones on, music on, working away. He's in the zone. And what? And he was telling me the one morning that um, their sales team have to walk through their part of the office to get to their own desks and they're all walking through patting him on the back hey how are you how's it and he's there with his headphones and it's just 
the irate fury of go away leave me alone can't you see i'm busy <laughs> yeah. it's um yeah i think i think that's maybe that's us it folk being a funny breed but yeah <laughs> it's, it's funny isn't it because it's we we read about the authors that that keep the the shack in the woods and they go out there to not be interrupted yeah. and um, and you think you're oh, the authors yes they need their quiet right they're they're concentrating on a story it's like you should be concentrating on whatever you're doing i understand how salespeople, and it's not a criticism of sales but i understand they've got to bounce from this call to that call they've got to be, but there must be times when they really need to concentrate and when the the hubbub of ringing phones around them and people you know <laughs> upping their their levels of enthusiasm on the phone to potential customers yeah. must get to them i i think that the business and industry changes have to be around trust and and yeah. moving to outcomes rather than presenteeism and um, i think some of the technologies that will follow just because of that will be more working on the web you know more 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 products will become more digital um we've seen this happening you know for years all of the old erp systems that would have had the little black screens or or the the windows apps they're all moving onto the web and they're moving so that you can use them on phones and all this more workflow will move to the web um, and when that does happen i think the industries that will get shocked by this will be things like the health and safety industry and the hr industry um, i know that when we first went out to uh, get the right accreditations or the right um the right certifications for home working for instance um because we were working at home permanently the first time we had to get everything pat tested um we had to set we had we had to find one company that had uh that was a national company and there weren't that many national pat testing companies because on the same day we wanted this pat testing company to go to all of our locations so you've got 10 locations all across the country and you'd think well why doesn't this happen surely this happens for big companies that have got offices everywhere but it just wasn't obvious it wasn't obvious that you could send pat testing companies to everybody's homes um it wasn't obvious that we could get um the right sort of health and safety training on uh, home-based workspaces and and you know silly things like we had to come up with a policy with a company where they checked the route from the front door to the desk that the person would be sitting at for wires that would be trailing across the floors. Normal things that you would do in your office yes. around uh, trailing, I'm looking to my side and I see a trailing wire. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, these sorts of things, we have to start considering that because um, as an employer, you are liable for where they're working. Yeah. Um, so you have to start to think about that. And I know a friend of mine uh, ha uh, has a company similar to, to mine, and he had a member of staff that went off sick after three months uh, with a bad back and it turned out he'd been sitting on the edge of his bed you know and and so you know which immediately says well why aren't you buying them desks and chairs why aren't you treating this like an office um yeah. we were talking to one agency at the start of lockdown and um they sent everybody home with their their laptops and if they could carry a screen they let them take a screen home you just think you're a business send that screen home via a courier or something like this like come on these people are going to work at home send them their equipment buy their equipment yeah yeah half half of our chairs have gone um, yeah yeah it's yeah it'd be interesting to see how that how that unfolds especially as business some businesses will obviously go back to the office and some businesses won't we've 
I know here what I've said with um, two thirds of the team have been sent home to, to work from home and looking at the long term direction. It's what I've said to the guys is I'd like you in the office a day a week because I'd like to remember what you look like. I'd like that emotional interaction and that I think that's been the hardest challenge is the is losing the emotional interaction, the physical interaction. Yeah. Um, but remote working is certainly um, certainly going to become a, a massive part of our agenda. Um, I think, and what you what you're saying about moving from presenteeism to outcome based working is so so important. And I think we'll see a lot a lot of changes in people's management styles, or we'll see a lot of managers having to change their lead their their management styles. Um, so if you're in a business developing KPI dashboards, then uh, you're probably well placed to benefit from that, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We were actually um, right before lockdown kick, kicked in. We were literally about to press the button on a on a new lease to double our floor space as well. So that's um, that obviously got put on pause. Yeah. Um, so still need to still need to make that decision. It's um, whilst we may not have as many desks in the office or the need for as much desk space. I think for us, it's also that communal space, the meeting space. Um, I don't have a meeting room big enough to get all of our team in, for example. And whilst we may not always want to do that, sometimes it, it would be nice to be able to say, right, guys, let's come in. Obviously, obviously, post post social distancing, just yeah. that now. But it'd be nice to say, actually, come on, guys let and girls, let's meet in the office. Let's have I mean, even if we're just good, even if we're just going to go and get a dozen pizzas in or something, just and just have that that interaction. Yeah. Um, well, that's we meet in. Um, we tend to meet in London. Uh, we've we've met in Birmingham and uh, a few other places, but mostly we we get together in London because all of the railway lines in the UK point at London, don't they? So yeah. uh, as we've got people on the south coast and in Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire and um, well, so some Bristol and where they're all over the place, they can all get into London. And what we do in London is we get a Regis for the day. Nobody works as hard on that day. Um, in terms of, I mean, they all still work, but they're not as, uh, I'm silent, I've got my headphones on, nobody's tapping me on the back, because we are tapping each other on the back on that day. Um, yeah. And I, I really think people, when they need to concentrate, if they're on their own, they concentrate more, don't they? Um, yeah. But we get together and then we go out for dinner and a couple of beers and whatever in the evening, and I, and I really like that. So I'm really pro uh, things like Regis, and uh, I know there's a, there's a fancy brand called WeWork, but... Um, I think that's a little bit smoke and mirrors, but the Regis's of the world where you can just go and get that office for the day. Um, and, and they're relatively nice. You know, a few years ago, they were a bit scummy, but I think Regis has spent a lot of money cleaning them up. Yeah. And um, we, before lockdown, we were doing that roughly once a month where we were all get down into London, book a train home for nine or 10 o'clock um, in the evening, go out and have some dinner afterwards and so we got to actually be in the room together and flesh out some stuff as well as um yeah you get that camaraderie you get the emotional connection yeah you get the physical i can sit here and wave my arms around but that's not the same as being sat um sat around the table from somebody is it yeah yeah i mean i i'm not saying that companies uh should be completely remote because um if you think about our company we're remote, but we still get together once a month. And then um, yeah. a few years back, we we went away for a weekend together. We hired forest holidays cabins, and quite a few of us have got kids. So 
you know, we all went to a zoo together and we did sort of out of work activities, you know, normal being humans. Um, and I'd like to do that again really soon. Uh, so because of the bonding side, you know, the, just the, the raw being together with you people. Uh, moving on to the last question, one one thing that we're going to ask all of our uh, podcast guests on Control Alt Speak, what is the one piece of technology that you could not imagine life without? Um, for me, the um, it's my I've got a smartwatch, and um, and I I was so against it, and I had a nice watch before, like a nice metally big clunky watch, um, and um, I was all against having these things, but now. This watch tells me when to get up and go for a walk. I, I actually check things like step counts. And I'm not I'm not like some super, I mean, you can tell, right? I'm not some sort of super, <laughs> super fitness person, right? But um, this thing has changed me. It makes me think more about, oh, I'll go out for that walk now. Um, I, um, and if, for instance, like if you, if you drink, your heart rate is higher the next day. And, um, and you see that and you think, oh, yeah, it is actually damaging me, isn't it? So, and um, so... I love that. I, I, I think it's cliche to answer with email or phones or anything like that. This thing is making a difference to my life. Mm. Um, and I never thought it would. And I, and I was a complete cynic. And I've only had it a couple of years. And I know they've been out for donkey's years. And what us tech people should be uh, adopters, uh, early adopters of all this stuff. But I didn't want to. I just thought, I don't want that on my wrist. you know. Um, and it's not for any of the businessy stuff that it does. It's all for the home stuff that it helps with that I love. Yeah, that's one of one of the guys here. He's um, and and I'm I'm the same. I, I love a good watch. Probably if, if you take if you take your um, your stereotypical lady with the shoes and handbags, that's me with a watch. I, I love a good watch. You know, dress for the day and and all that stuff. And one of the guys in the office, he was he was the same. He was um, and then he went and bought. Um, he went and bought an Apple, an Apple Watch. Other brands exist. Uh, we won't have any product placement here. Um, <laughs> he he went and bought he went and bought his smartwatch, and he raves about it. And he was in the office. I think it was last last week. We were talking about it. And when he bought his smartwatch, his wife was saying that, "Oh, it's just a fad. It's just yeah, it's just nonsense. Give it a couple of weeks. You'll be bored of it." His wife's now gone and bought one too. I'm really grateful that you've come on um, to uh, to record this, Stuart. Thank you very much. If the people that are watching and listening would like to find out more about you and more about Full Fat Things, how can they do that? They can go to fullfatthings.com or I'm on uh, uh, Twitter at StuSnooze, which is just the word Stu, S-T-E-W, like the food, uh, and then snooze, like the, uh, you know, afternoon nap. Thank you, Stuart. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, thank you very much. Cheers, bye-bye.